today, October 22, is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Adventist History Podcast, episode number 10, Growth Spurt. Before we begin, I think it'd be a great idea to look at the bigger picture. The 1840s for Sabbatarian Adventists were all about figuring out who they were and what they believed. The early 1850s, the period we're going to deal with today, was a period of rapid growth in spreading the message both in person and in print. The mid-1850s to early 1860s were all about organization, and that's what we'll deal with next time. So, 1840s, identity. Early 1850s, growth. Mid-1850s to mid-1860s, organization. Got it? It's the early 1850s period, the growth spurt, that we really need to talk about now. They've been planting seeds in the 1840s, and now there's a huge harvest. And then they'll spend the next 10 years trying to figure out how to store and organize the harvest. So let's go look at the harvest. In the last episode, we talked about the rise of publishing as a stabilizing and legitimizing force within Sabbatarian Adventism. We also talked about the big feud between James White and Joseph Bates over publishing, with Bates thinking it was a fantastic waste of manpower and money, while James believed it was a way to multiply their manpower and stretch their money. Travel was expensive, you could print something and mail it far cheaper. Bates argued that it just wasn't the same and then went out and proved it. So in 1849... Joseph Bates took off for Michigan. If you're thinking, wow, these guys have exclusively been running around New England, Michigan seems like a huge stretch for them, then you wouldn't be far off. But this is Joseph Bates here. You might remember that a conference in May of 1843 heard appeals from people in the South begging for William Miller to send some preachers to them. The Millerite Conference only voted to send literature because it was just too dangerous to send preachers. Most Millerites were abolitionists, and they feared being lynched. And then Joseph Bates volunteered. Though he didn't get any further south than Maryland before a Methodist preacher threatened to run him out of town on a rail, you may recall Bates's quip that so long as the preacher puts a saddle on the rail, that'd be just fine by him. So, yeah, if anyone was going to go to these newfangled states and preach, it would be Bates. So Bates went to Jackson, Michigan and did what he apparently always did, asked someone if there were any Adventists in town. Turns out, the blacksmith Dan Palmer was an Adventist, so Bates marched over to Palmer's smithy and proceeded to tell him about the Sabbath. But Palmer didn't have time to stop and listen, so he just kept working, hammering away. So amidst that sound of hammering and the heat of the furnace, Bates followed him around the shop and kept preaching. Palmer came around as so many people did with Joseph Bates, and in the afternoon both men were visiting one of Palmer's friends, Cyrenius Smith, who also came around. Just like that, there was a group of Sabbatarian Adventists in Michigan. One of them wrote to James White asking for the present truth to be sent their way, which James was oh so happy to do. The funny part is that Bates's Michigan excursion in 1849 must have seemed like a vindication to both he and James White in their feud over publishing. For Bates, 
his accomplishments in Michigan couldn't have been done by merely sending out a paper to people. It took personal effort. But Bates was only one man, and even though James White still went out and visited people and preached, he was just too tied down with publishing to do it too much. Bates and White could cover twice as much of the country than Bates could alone, and this is what drove Bates absolutely crazy. With White publishing, it was mostly up to him to do these personal visits. James White undoubtedly saw that Bates's trip to Michigan was proving his point as well. Someone should go study with these people and convince them. And then when the preacher moves on, James sends the paper to keep them connected to the community. Bates, however persuasive he is, cannot be everywhere at once, but the paper can. Michigan in 1849 was exactly what White wanted all along. So, yeah, it's no wonder it would take some time to sort all this out. What neither man quite realized yet was that whatever it is that they were doing was working. In 1850, there were about 200 Sabbatarian Adventists. Just three years later, there were over 2,000. Don't discount having 200 people in 1850, either, because those guys had to be won over by personal connections, the kind that Bates favored. That's a lot of people to convince in the four years these guys have been keeping the Sabbath. I mean, you try convincing 50 people a year to convert to your religious beliefs. And then for that number to balloon to 2,000 just a few years later? My goodness, that's a ridiculous growth rate. And really, both Bates and James White deserve the credit for it. First place medals for everyone. Yay! And of course, there were plenty of other believers carrying the message from town to town faithfully, so I don't want you to think that these were the only two guys doing anything. In 1851, James and Ellen moved to Saratoga Springs in New York. They were only there for nine months because they were allergic to living anywhere for very long, it seems. But during that time, James helped Ellen publish her first book, a little account of her first visions that would eventually be called Early Writings. Even still, James also decided not to publish Ellen's visions in the review anymore so that people don't become prejudiced against the movement simply because they think Ellen is crazy. This, of course, didn't mean James lacked confidence in Ellen's prophetic gift, just that it wasn't a required belief in order to be a part of the movement. And it certainly wasn't a good way to introduce the movement to people. Hi, I'm James. We're normal people, except we keep the Sabbath, don't believe you go to heaven when you die, think Jesus is coming uncomfortably soon, and, oh yeah, my wife is a prophet. Please join us. The explosion of members meant that the review wasn't constantly in imminent financial danger. Arthur White notes that James would list donors who gave one dollar to the review in 1850. In 1851, he was thanking the believers in Connecticut for paying forty dollars, and another half-dozen people who each sent five dollars. And, of course, James was selling plenty of things on the side, such as hymn books, atlases, prophecy charts, and concordances. This would later get him into a little bit of trouble, as he would come to realize, because people would start to murmur about James's little Amazon.com that he was setting up and wonder how much money he must be making. It seemed to some 
that James used the circulation of the review to sell a few extra things, mixing his own interests with the interests of the movement and thus compromising them both. Of course, James would defend himself by saying, yeah, if you tightwads would send me some more money, I wouldn't have to sell other things. Everyone always assumes that nonprofits and churches rake in the money, you know? The period of growth wasn't just growth in terms of quantity, either. Joseph Bates and the Whites really began recruiting the next generation of talented leaders. In other words, people we'll be talking about a lot in the episodes ahead. So let's meet a few of these new guys. First up, John Byington. John was one of the old-timers in Joseph Bates's generation. He was active in the Methodist Church, and he even built one. He ended up building the first Seventh-day Adventist Church, too, right next to the Methodist one that he had built. Byington's home was a stop in the Underground Railroad, and his family had a lot of love for a former slave named Sojourner Truth. Byington was finally convinced of the Sabbath when he was given a copy of the Review and Herald in 1852. Just 11 years later, John Byington became the first General Conference President of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Secondly, there's J.N. Andrews. Now, we already talked about him last week, so there's no need to say more here, except to remind you that he's alive and well and really, really involved. Third up is John Loughborough, the man who claimed that he was a descendant of the Chancellor to George III, though there's reason to doubt that. Loughborough was a Sunday-keeping Adventist preacher in Rochester, New York, when he began to have some doubts. He attended some Advent Christian meetings in the summer of 1852, where his compatriots proceeded to rip holes in two Sabbatarian Adventist leaders that he had never heard of, people named James and Ellen White. James was actually there, coincidentally, unbeknownst to John or the unfortunate preachers. Eventually, some in John's churches started keeping the Sabbath, something he himself was still unsure of but he felt compelled to confront it. As some of his members were attending some meetings held by J.N. Andrews, Loughborough prepared to confront the man. But he couldn't. He had a dream of Andrews, he realized as soon as he saw him. And when Andrews got up to preach, Andrews used every single one of the Bible texts Loughborough was prepared to use against Andrews, and in the exact same order in which Loughborough had written them down. With some more studying, Loughborough was locked in and good to go. Fourth, we have Uriah Smith. Uriah Smith came on board in 1852, just like Byington and Loughborough. Uriah Smith would one day serve as the Seventh-day Adventist Church's secretary and, after James White, point man at the review. Uriah was a gifted writer. In fact, one of his first pieces for the review was a 35,000-word poem, which, yeah, wow. Unlike most of the other pioneers of the movement, Uriah was no country bumpkin. Uriah attended Phillips Exeter Academy, where he learned Latin and Greek and aimed at Harvard College. That never really happened, because his dad died in 1852 before he could go to Harvard, and it ended up pushing Uriah out early to earn his way in life, which he did, at least at first, by teaching. According to John Loughborough, years later, Uriah's mother pushed his sister, Annie, 
to attend a meeting held by Joseph Bates. Turns out, both Joseph and Annie had dreamt of seeing each other at the meeting, which is definitely an awkward way to begin a conversation. I dreamt about you. So did I. Okay, so, uh, how's the weather? Annie started keeping Sabbath three weeks later. A poet in her own right, she sent a poem in to the review, and James responded by inviting her to work for the review, which was then in Saratoga Springs. Uriah began to be roped into this whole thing as well, and before long he was believing also. Of course, as I just said, he also wrote a poem for the review. Lots of poetry going on with those two kids. Of course, James offered Uriah a job at the review as well. So here's my advice to all our listeners out there who want a job. Write a poem, email it to the Adventist Review, and see what happens. Here's the final kicker. As Annie had gone back home after their father died in 1852, both she and Uriah were offered a job heading up a school in New Hampshire. The pay for the school was $1,000 a year, which is a ridiculous amount of money for two young teachers. And of course, they declined the offer in order to go work for James White for free. Fifth, we have Stephen N. Haskell, another Sunday-keeping Adventist preacher. He came around in 1853 when a railroad tinsmith named William Saxby got Haskell, who was changing trains. Haskell simply needed a place to store his luggage, and Saxby's shop was happy to help. Haskell went home with Saxby that night to talk more, and when he left in the morning, he was handed a tract in the review that called Elihu on the Sabbath. Haskell went on, but he found it hard to convince his Sunday Adventists of the Sabbath. Then a certain Joseph Bates appeared, announcing that he was a friend of William Saxby, of course he was, and came to check on him. Check on him he did, and Bates left the Haskell family with an order for every tract and paper published by the Review. Brother Bates, Haskell recalled, preached to us, there were only two of us, from morning until noon, and from noon until night, and then in the evening until the time we went to bed. He did that for ten consecutive days, and I have been a Seventh-day Adventist ever since. Finally, there's a few people we have to give a shout-out to, because they and their kids are going to be hugely important in the church. There's Joseph Wagner, whose son would dominate the stormy 1888 General Conference session with Ellen White. Then there's John Kellogg of Michigan, whose financial support for the early Adventist work was critical. He, too, would be surpassed by his sons, one of whom invented the cornflakes you ate this morning. Yes, yes, that Kellogg. And then there's Ezra P. Butler, who Bates finally brought in in 1850. He, too, was a big help early on. His son would also be destined to be the General Conference president and the enemy of Joseph Wagner's son in 1888. So stay tuned for that. As if traveling to Michigan wasn't enough, January of 1852 found Joseph Bates and Hiram Edson heading to Canada, where he circuited a snowy Lake Ontario and left with a hundred people interested in the Sabbath. I mean, Bates was a hair shy of 60 years old at this point and was routinely gone for six months or more at a time. His poor wife. And how would you like to be Hiram Edson here? 
I live in this constant terror of a moment when Bates asks me if I want to run an errand with him, only to find out that his errand is marching around one of the Great Lakes in the snow. I mean, the guy is 60. I can't exactly chicken out now, can I? Bates triggered some red flags with a Sunday Adventist named Clark in Canada who wrote to Joshua V. Himes asking advice on how to handle this Bates guy. Himes had known Bates since the 1820s, and he duly warned Clark, quote, Captain Bates is an old personal friend of ours, and so far as we know, is better as a man than most of his associates. But we have no confidence in his teaching. He should not be tolerated for a moment, end quote. I mean, Bates also marched over to William Miller's farm to visit his widow and the believers gathered there, and he preached the Sabbath to them as well. I mean, that's bold, Bates. Bold. In March of that year, a little conference was held in Saratoga Springs, where the believers agreed that they needed to move the review office yet again, this time to Rochester, New York. They agreed that it was time for the movement to buy their own press and gain full control over the whole operation. It would be the first piece of property they owned, and Hiram Edson sold his farm to loan James the money he needed. Now, Rochester was a really happening place at this time. It was the center of a lot of social change. Get a load of this. In 1848, a freed slave named Frederick Douglass started writing an abolitionist paper, The North Star, from Rochester, New York. Douglass attended the famous Seneca Falls Convention, also in 1848, which was not too far away from Rochester, where Elizabeth Cady Stanton argued that women should be given the right to vote. Not too far away from Rochester was the town of Hydesville, when, you guessed it, in 1848 the Fox sisters claimed that the house they lived in was haunted and that they could communicate with the spirits who lived there. Even though they later said it was all a hoax, this spiritualism thing would be a pain in Ella White's side for some time. Nearby, though not in 1848, was also the spot where Joseph Smith claimed to find the Book of Mormon. So yeah, lots going on around Rochester. In April 1852, the Whites rented a house there on 124 Mount Hope Avenue for $175 a year. A board across two empty flour barrels served as their table, and they pretty much lived on a diet of turnips and beans, plus whatever they could grow in their garden. When spring set in, James hired someone to plow the garden. The man discovered several buried potatoes from the previous year, and Ellen happily collected these and put them to good use. While Rochester was a happening place, it ended up being a contrast to the rough life of James and Ellen. They still wrestled with poverty, no matter what those critics out there said about James White getting rich off the review. Turnips and beans, man, turnips and beans. In order to save money, James and Ellen had the growing staff of the review live with them. By growing staff, I mean like 12 to 14 people. Some were family, and not everyone worked on the review itself, but everyone helped in some way or another. The average age of these people, by the way, was 25 years old. While that's pretty young compared with the average age of church people today, <clears throat> we should keep in mind that people back then were lucky to make it out of their 40s. So, really, James being in his early 30s at this point was, you know, nearing the end. 
Eventually, there were just too many people in one house, so they moved the review offices deeper into town. In August, James began printing the Youth's Instructor, which would in 1970 be renamed Insight Magazine for long overdue reasons. This was also the time Bates returned to Jackson, Michigan, and finally snagged John P. Kellogg to the fold. This time, however, Bates visited Battle Creek, Michigan, after having a dream about sailing to a port called Battle Creek. I mean, what else does a sailor dream about? His custom was to enter a town and ask whether there were any Sunday-keeping Adventists there, just like he did in Jackson before. If it has seemed like these Sabbath-keeping Adventists really seemed to convert people with ease, it's because the vast majority of them were already some flavor of an Adventist. They only needed to be convinced on a few more points, like the Sabbath. However, there were no Adventists in Battle Creek, so Bates chose the next best option. Who, he asked somebody at the post office, is the most honest man in town? The post person responded, David Hewitt. Bates went over and found Hewitt eating breakfast, and by the end of the day, Hewitt was convinced. Of course he was. What little there was to the church in Battle Creek met in Hewitt's home. John Loughborough led the first worship service there in 1853, and by worship service I mean that there were eight people present. 1853 was also the year that James and Ellen first visited this Michigan place they kept hearing so much about, and they took a train to Buffalo and then a boat to Detroit. The Whites were greeted with great enthusiasm by Dan Palmer and the Kellogg and everyone else who had been so eagerly reading the review. A funny thing happened when Dan Palmer's wife had an argument with a neighbor and called her a witch, except uh, one of the other church members thought she heard Palmer's wife use a word that just rhymes with witch. Church members demanded to know what she said, and Mrs. Palmer wasn't about to answer to them. Then James and Ellen arrived. Ellen White had a vision and accosted Mrs. Palmer for the way she represented her faith to her neighbor. The two church members who had been hounding poor Mrs. Palmer were jubilant. Truly, this woman was a prophet, until the next day when Ellen White had another vision. This time, she learned that Mrs. Palmer had not used the word they thought she used, and that they weren't being very nice to her, now were they? At that Mrs. Palmer confessed that she had simply called her neighbor a witch, and people forgave her. Except, of course, the two church members who were the foremost of accusing her. Suddenly they didn't think Ellen White was much of a prophet at all, now was she? These two numbskulls would go on to start the first dissident movement among Adventists, called the Messenger Party. They even wrote a nifty paper a few months later as well, and would be a serious nuisance throughout the 1850s. More pressing than the messenger party right now were the back-and-forth attacks between the Advent Christians and the Sabbath-keeping ones. Both of them apparently saw each other as a great threat to their own position. And it was like a naval battle between two ships, these two publications, the Review with James White and Joseph Marsh's Harbinger and Advocate. Now, O.R.L. Crozier, along with Hiram Edson, had built the first foundation for our Adventist identity way back when, but Crozier, after accepting the Sabbath from Bates, eventually changed his mind. 
Crozier used the advocate to broadside against the Sabbath, which naturally drew a response from Bates in the review. Crozier would make it his personal mission to annoy Bates and the Sabbath keepers in general. One time, he would even try to book a speaking appointment right after Bates in order to contradict everything Bates had just said. Mostly, however, the two men just attacked each other's positions in the paper, and it often became personal. James White fretted about how the review was being used like this, but let it go on for a little while. For his part, Joseph Marsh wrote to his readers that he was so sorry for spending so much time talking about the Sabbath in his paper, but that he had a mission to rescue these deluded people. His words, not mine. I suppose the net result was that a few key preachers did end up coming over to Bates's side, but it was a brutal war that didn't really leave anyone looking particularly noble. There were problems with the movement growing this fast, too. When you had 100 to 200 people, you could more or less know who everyone is. But when you grow so fast, chaos becomes a very real danger to your viability as a church. The messenger party was proof of that, as some of their preachers would come and pretend to be loyal Sabbath-keeping Adventists, only to lead members astray. There was a very real need to have a password or secret handshake or something, or maybe credentials for ordination. Ordination in the early Adventist movement wasn't a theological thing, but an organizational necessity. That way they could give this card or piece of paper to their preachers that said to different churches they visited, Hey, look at me, I am officially part of this group. You can trust me, it's safe. The movement also needed a way to pay their ministers efficiently, a problem we're going to see in the next episode quite acutely. Finally, they had no legal organization for holding property. So the press was owned by James White, not the church. Maybe that's okay, but it's a serious problem in years to come when you need to start owning churches and assets worth tens of thousands of dollars. It's a problem the church will get burned by later on when a very prominent member would take a very prominent institution away from the church. The problem with these problems is that the movement was fiercely anti-organization. They still lived and died by the saying of Millerite preacher George Storrs, who said, quote, No church can be organized by man's invention, but what it becomes Babylon the moment it's organized, end quote. That is, as soon as we build buildings and have centralized leadership, we're going to go stale and become like everyone else. We'll lose our flexibility, and that is what has made us Adventists so far. That's been our power. In many ways, the movement mirrored the infant United States, which would probably be horrified at how the government has evolved in power today. But the fact is that as an organization grows, it must, well, organize. Think of Moses in the wilderness. This guy couldn't manage all those people. He needed help. And a 1790s United States government couldn't manage a United States people in the 2000s. James and Ellen were among the first to begin advocating for organization, and it wasn't popular. It was an uphill battle all the way. But I think that's a story for next time.
Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Avenus History content, then go subscribe to Avenus History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Avenus History Project. You can get access to Avenus History Extra on the website, which is avenushistoryproject.org, or by becoming a patron at patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Avenus History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Avenus History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So... If you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour so I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening.